Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I always wonder when I do that with me and how long I'm going to delay before I say (laughs) Barry Katz. I don't know why. I just don't like the sound of my own name. I've always hated my name, Barry Katz. I always thought to myself, one time I took my mom aside. I said, Mom, why didn't you just name me Jew Israel? Wouldn't that have been easier? I mean, the Barry Katz, I mean, come on. It's like, it's ridiculous. It's too Jewish. And so I figured I'd have to move to this town. Either that or become an accountant. So I came here and I'm doing this podcast now, which I do in my spare time. It's lunchtime now. And it's fun. Instead of eating, you can do the podcast and you can actually lose weight and inspire people. It's fantastic. One of my producers, Max Mollian, has literally lost a family of four. It's unbelievable. He is wasting away to nothing. It's like he's shredding or something. I don't know what it is, but he looks good. He always dresses with a shirt with designs that are not found in any website or internet portal in the world, and they're fascinating. There's like fish chasing cats and dogs on his shirts. I don't know what it is. But it's there. I don't even know where I'm going with that. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and supporting it. It's just incredible when you hear that people <laughs> listen and, and like it. I always hoped that that would be the case. And I'm very grateful to all of you for that and supporting the show and also doing everything you do for me and for the guests. So I appreciate that. Anyway, I'm very excited today because when you can sit across from somebody who you've known in the past for a long time 
and who's a big part of your life, like my guest today, Greg Coolidge, it means a lot because I always talk about relationships and where they go and how they go, and you never really know what's going to happen in your life. Fate is a very, very strange thing with great things and with negative things. And oftentimes when I represent an artist, you don't know what's going to happen or how it's going to happen. In my mind, I know it's going to happen. I just don't know when it's going to happen. It's kind of like when you bring a bunch of contractors to your house and you say, <laughs> look, you know, I'd like to renovate this room, this room, and this room. No problem, boss. That'll be done by this date. And then that date comes around and not good. <laughs> Shit isn't done. It's not all together. It's not happening. It's not happening the way you want it, but part of it's happening. Hey, look at the floor over there. Isn't that nice the way you want it? Yeah, but there's no doors. There's no entranceway. There's no toilet. I know, but Barry, it's going to get there. But you said it was going to happen at this point. I know, but you know, things happen. And that's what show business and what these uh, crazy relationships are all about. And my guest today is a weird thing. I met him in a house in the Hollywood Hills. Yes. I was renting a room from a great friend of mine, a world-class photographer and director and now producer named Jeff Nicholson from St. Louis. And he was going out with this woman named Dana Decker at the time. And Dana Decker, I didn't know what she did or what it was, but the house was like unbelievable. I mean, there was <laughs> artifacts in that house that were older than God. And there were these huge wooden doorways from before Christ. And she was just the classiest person in the world. Right now, she started her own line of candles and decorative things, and she's doing really, really well. And Jeff went on to marry a wonderful woman named Missy. And so I'm in his house, and when your places that photographers hang out, you meet people. Yeah. And I met Greg Coolidge there, and I believe he had just done a short film that Jeff was excited about that he showed me that That's he did. Right. It was set in a gym, and it was very, very funny, and I loved it. And you got the feeling when you met Greg, a few different things. Number one, a guy who is an incredibly, and was at the time, an incredibly nice guy. One of the things that we don't talk about that often is that as people, we all know our idiosyncrasies. We all know that if there was a video camera on us 24 hours a day for a month and the video went out on TMZ, none of us would have a career or a job. <laughs> but the thing is that for the most part, besides those things that we can't see, when we meet people a lot of times, we tend to know right away if it's a person who's a wonderful, wonderful person or the kind of person where the hair on the back of your neck stands up. And Greg was the kind of guy that you really felt great about. Every person in life normally attracts their like kind of people. So Jeff would attract really wonderful, nice, charismatic, mm -hmm. sweet people. But in every person's life, there's always that guy with a cowboy hat, cowboy boots, has the stubble, the no smile, and is his best friend. And you're wondering, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> but Greg wasn't that person. And I felt great things about Greg. And as fate would have it, 
no more than five or six or seven years later, I was working with Dane Cook and we did a deal at Lionsgate to do Dane's first feature length film called Employee of the Month. And guess who was the director? It was Greg Coolidge. And nothing made me happier because I was going to be around a guy who I felt wonderful about and I felt great feelings about. And when you're representing an artist or if ever you're in a situation in any job that you're in, you want to know that if you bring a new client to the firm, you want them to be with the person that's going to make them feel good. And artists are complicated. And when you're doing your first movie, there's a lot of pressure. You want to be great. You want to do great things. And the weird part about our business is normally when a new artist like Dane at the time get their first film, the studio, which was Lionsgate, they don't want to spend a lot of money. You want to get a great director. I mean, at the time, Tom Shadyac did Nutty Professor. He probably made $10 million yeah. a film. The budget for Employee of the Month was $10 million. It was less than that, actually. And so you're in a situation where when you start and you do a new movie, basically a lot of the elements of the movie are a risk. And every element that's a risk is that new talent that you don't know if they're going to be able to carry the film. Then you got a new director. You don't know if they're going to do well. So a lot of times studios will find a director of photography that's worked on the greatest comedies of all time, but they don't really get paid that much. And, hey, can you come on here? Just, you know, just watch Greg. You know, don't tell him you're watching him. (laughs) And if he doesn't do something, just call us. Call us. We'll talk to him. And so that's what they do. And so we did the movie. We had an amazing time. It was an incredibly wonderful small film. I really felt good about the film. One of the things I was nervous about, because they did something else that cracked the foundation, they decided to hire Jessica Simpson. And it's not that Jessica Simpson and the role she had was this thing that had this wide-ranging thing that they gave her that was Mm -hmm. in the script. It was just you were betting on another person who hadn't carried a film. Mm -hmm. Yes, she was Daisy Duke, but she hadn't carried a film. So now you have three elements. You have the star, The Mm -hmm. co-star and the director are three elements of the most important elements of the film, and they're people who haven't done it before. And so that's who you're betting on. You're in a situation that's risky. It's always risky. And rather than talk about the risk for Dane Cook or the risk for Jessica Simpson, is the fact that when a director and a star are given the keys to the kingdom they have a chance to do something special. But all eyes are on them to do something special. And they might do something special, but then America has to weigh in. And so Greg Coolidge is tied to Dane Cook. Dane Cook is tied to Greg Coolidge. Jessica Simpson tied to Dane Cook and Greg Coolidge. So if things don't go the way they're supposed to go, as well as perceptions go, It's not good for anybody. So what happens is when you're doing the movie, your agents, your managers, everybody is trying to scramble and get you that next job locked up. So whatever the results are of this movie, Mm -hmm. you have your next thing set up. Unfortunately, the people in this town are shrewd. 
and they would say, hey, we'll we'll to do a deal with Greg or Dane or whatever. We'll wait a little bit. Dane was fortunate because mm-hmm. we had like a three-picture deal, and so he was already in a situation where he was all set. Jessica Simpson, not so much, and Greg Coolidge, not so much. So then the movie comes out, and the movie opens between 11 and $12 million. So <laughs> what Lionsgate did which is surprising because they're a very successful company. They put out a press release with their president of the company saying that they were expecting 18 to 20 million. So when it came out, it was under their expectations. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, at that time, there was a huge DVD business and there was a huge residual business that there isn't now as much. And one of the things that a lot of people didn't understand is that after the movie came out, and I think it did 28 million total or 30 million, and I don't know how much worldwide, and it made money. It made more money than any Lionsgate film at the time. Until The Expendables. They said it's their most successful movie. That's right. And it was their most successful movie because the DVD sales at the time and the rentals were over $80 million. But people don't put that in the bottom line. And so Hollywood just sees Dane Cook opens his first movie at $28 million. Greg Coolidge, his first directorial <laughs> debut, $28 million. Now, even though the movie made money, successful, Hollywood is cruel. Now, a lot of times they say, hey, we'll put this guy on a list. He'll be on the big list out there of directors we want to give a job That's to. Great. But he's not number one on the list. No, I was 27 because yeah. I saw the list. That's I got, right. It was snuck to me. Yeah. So he's 27 out it of 30. It was cool being on the list, though, with all these other people. It's always nice yeah. being on a list. <laughs> so one of the things I want to talk about yeah. is how things happen in this world, is how you can be a really nice guy, how you can be really talented, how you can do a really great job. And you can get the job directing your film. No one on the set has a complaint about Greg Coolidge. Nobody's watching the movie and saying, ah, you know, if I were directing that, I would have done this, 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 and this. It was a straightforward, keep it simple, let the artists who have great facial expressions and reactions and words like Andy Dick and Harlan Williams and Dak Shepard and Dane Cook, let them deliver their things. Dane. I thought was wonderful in the sense that he played the movie like he was Jerry Seinfeld in Seinfeld. He let the cast of Mm -hmm. characters around him kick ass, play off of him. He had some moments, but the main thing was he was acceptable of a role. Because when the role came about, Greg thought about him doing the Dak Shepard role so he could do more comedy. But my feeling for Dane was the fact that That role was an unlovable, unlikable role, and it was a role that didn't win. That character doesn't win. And if you're an artist out there, it's much better to be a guy who wins, who doesn't get as much laughs, as a guy who's a mean-spirited guy, Mm -hmm. who's a dark guy, Mm -hmm. who doesn't win, unless you want that lane in your career. And we could sit down with Ice Cube and talk, the world over about <laughs> what it means to be a straight man and do it well and how much money you can make. Now, not that Dane was a straight man, but I'm just saying that. But what sure. I want to talk about is Greg and his situation. He gets this job. It's the biggest time of his life. Mm-hmm. The movie comes out. It does what it does. And guess what, everybody? 
Greg has the goal. I want to be a director. I want to write and direct, but I want to be a director. I want to be a guy who's helming these things, writing them all eventually, doing them. And what happens in the film world to Greg Coolidge? The fact is, when you look at Greg Coolidge's resume and his bio, which we're going to talk a lot about, which will blow you away, one thing is very, very noticeably missing in here. And that's the fact that since 2006, 10 years ago, when he directed Employee of the Month, Greg Coolidge has never been given the opportunity that came to fruition. And all the pieces came together to where he directed a film that has been in theaters since then. Mm -hmm. Now, as we're going to talk about, there are several things in the pipeline <laughs> that he's set to direct in feature films going forward. But as of this moment, a decade has gone by, and this guy, who's the Ouch. nicest guy in show business, who's one of the most talented guys in show business, and one of the greatest presences you'll ever be around, is in a situation where for 10 years he's been trying to get a feature film mm -hmm. to direct and get out there in a movie theater where people can look and be inspired and judge. But... During that time, did Greg Coolidge sit on his ass? Did Greg Coolidge say, woe is me? Did Greg Coolidge say, oh, well, fuck, the business doesn't want me, doesn't need me, it doesn't like me, so I'm going to do something else insignificant without being in the business? No. Greg Coolidge sought out the relationships that he had in his life through previous jobs. And as you're going to find out, he formed partnerships with a number of different people. He thought to himself, you know, I could write alone but why not collaborate with other people? Why not make it that way? I can always go out and write on my own, but let me get some things going with some people who are getting things going as well. Mm -hmm. And through that period of time, he started writing all these things that started getting sold. He went on to direct a television series that was one of the highest budgeted television series for Nickelodeon mm -hmm. called The Troop. And so he went into television and he directed in television and he went into kids' television. And he said, I can do this. And probably his agents were saying, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? Don't go into kids' television. This will ruin your career. But he believed in himself. But he didn't get any directing offers for features. So he kept writing and writing and writing. And it paid off. And it might not have paid off in spades right away the way he wanted it to. But when you can pen a project that's called Ride Along... And you and the studio and can get people like Kevin Hart and Ice Cube engaged in it and realize when you're writing it that, hey, guys, this could be a franchise if we get the right people. And then you've written that and it becomes the highest grossing box office film in the history of filmmaking for the Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. You know that you've gone into a different lane that will help you get the opportunity to get back and do what you want. And to quote something that Dane Cook said, if people aren't giving you the respect that you deserve, if they're not writing the checks for you where you want them to be written, you need to create a noise that is so large that Hollywood has to listen. <laughs> great. And after 10 years... Greg Coolidge did something that Hollywood had to listen to. And now 
ask Greg Coolidge if he has any problems setting up anything to direct. The answer is no. He probably has over 20 different projects set up all over Hollywood. And so the lesson here is, as your mom told you when you were a little kid, when life closes a door, another window opens or another mm -hmm. door opens. Mm -hmm. If you go and take the steps towards the door or the window, you still have to go and open the window and open the door. Yeah. And so go out there, no matter what anything happens in your life and your business that shuts a door on you, you get fucked over on something, people don't respect you in one way, go in a different line of your skill set and talent, forge forward, make a noise, make a difference there, and you'll be able to get the attention of the people in your profession. And if you do that, I guarantee you that you will have the kind of career that Greg Coolidge has. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, 
never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. <laughs> Listen, thanks again for clicking on that Amazon banner, by the way, on barrykatz.com slash podcast. It's wonderful. Amazon takes care of my Jewish children for their college fund, and it doesn't cost you anything. I'm grateful for that, and thank you so much. But without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest, who has now slipped into a severe coma and is drooling. But it doesn't matter. We're going to get them back, everybody. So here goes. Greg Coolidge is a native of Oklahoma, which the motto in Oklahoma is, Oklahoma is okay. And he moved <laughs> to Los Angeles where he immediately found success producing and starring in the Sundance favorite Possums. With the momentum of the film, Coolidge began to expand his career co-writing Disney's cult hit Sorority Boys and its sequel and then broke out on his own writing and selling the Sachem Cup? Yeah, it was called the Sachem Cup, yeah. Got him. Yeah. To Revolution Studios with Joe Roth and The Wanderer to DreamWorks Animation. He soon created Revved for Fox Television, and he created both 5.0 and Procedural for NBC Universal TV, proving his success easily translated from the big to the small screen. During this time, he also began collaborating with a group of fellow comedy writers called The Job Factory. Yeah. I remember this. He used to go to his manager's office, at a conference room, yeah. and they used to sit around and write all day long. It was like TV writing. It was features, yeah. great for the people that this guy represented, bad for his business and his office. But anyway, <laughs> doesn't matter. Who was that manager again? Uh, Walter Humada. Walter Humada. He's now at New Line. That's right. Yeah. Now at New Line. And where are you doing your features? Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Relationships. Together, <laughs> they wrote Long Shots and Uncoachable for Disney and super movie for Revolution. Greg followed his continuing success as a writer with his directorial debut that we talked about, Employee of the Month, Lionsgate's hit comedy starring Dane Cook, Jessica Simpson, and Dax Shepard. The movie was Lionsgate's fastest film to go into profit in its history until the Expendables franchise, ah, which coincidentally Coolidge also worked on as a writer and executive producer. Ding, 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 ding. Relationships. Following his success on Employee of the Month, Coolidge began producing his original idea, Man Crush, with fellow Job Factory member Rob McKittrick at New Line. He co-created, directed, and executive produced the highly anticipated action-adventure show The Troop for Nickelodeon, which was their highest-budgeted show ever. Following 40 episodes and back-to-back seasons and establishing himself as an accomplished writer, director, and producer, he teamed up with another Job Factory member, Josh Kagan where the two scripted Coolidge's pitch, Dirty Old Men, which Warner Brothers purchased with Morgan Freeman attached to produce and star. 
realizing that you can get twice as much accomplished when collaborating, Coolidge partnered with yet another writer, Kirk Ward, to help rewrite the new line feature For Sale, starring rapper T.I., which Coolidge was set to direct until T.I. sort of went to Alcatraz. Deciding to continue their partnership, Coolidge and Ward followed up by selling The Last Ninja, a live-action, big-budget adventure series to the Cartoon Network, and they just attached Tyler Perry and The Rock to star in their latest endeavor, Take My Wife. Coolidge is also the creator and writer of the hit Universal Pictures franchise, Ride Along, which set Universal's box office record for Martin Luther King weekend and the biggest January opening of all time at $48.6 million. Coolidge is currently writing and producing the Expendables television series for Fox, which is produced by Lionsgate, and he has over 20 feature and television projects set up at every major studio, earning his way into a small group of writer-director-producers who have the benefit of an open door anywhere in Hollywood. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> please welcome my guest today. It's such a pleasure to see him again. Unbelievable. Greg Coolidge. Well, I just have to tell you, I'm so flattered that you even asked me to do this because I listen to this when I travel. This is like one of my favorite. And you didn't believe I me. I don't believe no, you. No, it's true. It's true. Like, because, you know, I'm with, I'm with Paradigm now. And to hear, what, like, I heard the Sam Gores one, and I, and I was just... Sam Gores, yeah. the president of Paradigm. And, and I was just fascinated by it. That's one of the first ones I listened to. And I thought, well, this is really cool. I really enjoy it. Because this is the time, like, in Hollywood, you go to these parties, and everyone says, what do you do? And you spend 10 minutes, and you kind of catch up with someone. But this is like a concentrated version of hearing all the cool shit that people are doing. So that's why I like it. So I don't go to parties now. I just listen to this. <laughs> I really enjoy it. Yeah. I get all these letters from so many different people. This guy somewhere in the Midwest says, thank you for your podcast. It's so inspirational. I just listened to it on the way home. The other day I'm in my driveway and I'm in my car and there's a knock on the window. And I look up and I'm scared. It's my wife. She says, are you coming in the house? I mean, you've been out here for an hour. He's like, listen, I just got to finish this episode. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I said, dinner is going to be late and cold if you're listening to this episode. But oh, I love it. I love it. It's That's my kind of thing. Like, Born Standing Up, Gasping for Airtime. Those are my favorite books. And so this, to me, is the same kind of medium. And Steve Martin and Jay Moore. Yeah. I just have to ask, maybe I shouldn't ask you, but where did you find out about the podcast? Like, I, it always amazes me when I sit down with guests and they've been listening. I'm like, holy crap, how I does this happen? I remember someone mentioned, so your name came up, so someone did, Barry's going to be here, <laughs> you know, and someone mentioned you. That is the like, worst oh. impression of me yeah, ever. I know, it was the worst. <laughs> Yours is much better. Um, so someone had mentioned it. Oh, yeah, Barry's doing a podcast. And I was like, oh, okay. So I figured I would check it out. I had no idea what it was. So it was really just through that. And I can't remember what's probably at a party, you know. The so. last party you ever went to. <laughs> yeah, so I, I have to say uh, I'm very flattered. So thank you for, for thinking of me and inviting me. Oh, I'm sorry. It took You're one so of the long. first people I met in L.A. That's what I love about this. Seeing you at that house, at Jeff Nicholson's house. And he said, there's this manager. He's, you know, renting a room for me. And I'm thinking, this guy's going to be creepy. This is going to be weird. <laughs> and you were right. Of, yeah. I was partially, uh, yeah, and it, and it turned out you were actually a legit manager of real talent, and he was a good person. And like you said, Jeff surrounds himself with, with good people. And so getting to know you right from the beginning was really cool. 
And when the Dane Cook thing came around for Employee of the Month, you know, there's maybe a hundred people you know well in this town. You might know everybody through Six Degrees or whatever, but it was nice when that came up. And I remember them saying to me, we're going to greenlight Employee of the Month. Who do you want? And I thought, Dane was one of the first guys I wanted to go after for the Dax role. And I thought, well, what about Dane Cook? And they said, we love Dane. And or actually, at first, they were like, eh, he's a little untested. Then his album hit. And then they called me. So people know, we released Dane's second album. His first album was self-produced. His second album was Retaliation. And it launched at number four on the Billboard charts. And it was the first time a comedy album yeah. had ever done that since Steve Martin. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they were high on Dane. And this happened with, within a couple of weeks. And so I said, well, I actually know Barry. And it was really, really nice to actually know somebody for real and go, hey, I could uh, make a phone call. And, and then the rest is history. So it was really nice being able to know you as a person. And I had known Dane because he had done his short film and I had done my short film. So we had... Dane had done a short film, Spiral. for those of you who don't know, called Spiral because Dane wasn't getting an opportunity to get auditions for acting, like serious acting. And so he and Jeff Nicholson... Mm -hmm invested their money and they did a short film back then when you did a short film you weren't doing a short film like today which you know cost you six dollars and a subway token it cost like fifty thousand dollars to do it it was incredible on film and very dark and just to tell you a story which i probably i think it's a really inspiring story so Dane spent all the money he had jeff nicholson spent all the money he had because he wanted to be known as a director mm -hmm. And nothing happened with this movie. Nothing really happened for Jeff because of it, and nothing really happened for Dane because of it, but it was great. Mm -hmm. And every year that went by, I wondered to myself, and probably Dane wondered to himself, can something happen? Will this ever be worthwhile, what I did here? I bet on myself. I think I did great work. Mm -hmm. And then something amazing happened. There was a movie called Mr. Brooks where Zach Braff had one of the leads and he fell out of the movie. And Dane's agent at CAA was going over to Kevin Costner's house. And he called me and he said, listen, I'm going over his house. He's looking at people to do this role. He doesn't want to waste any time. He just wants to make a decision. Do you have anything to show me? And I'm literally searching through boxes like I'm in the show Hoarders. And I found this DVD of Spiral. Mm -hmm. And luckily it was transferred and it was okay. And gave it to the agent, brought it over to Kevin Costner's house. And Kevin Costner booked Dane Cook wow. and Mr. Brooks because wow. of that short film he did probably 10 years earlier with wow. Jeff Nicholson. And he got paid a lot of money, and it paid for the film, and it launched his career as a guy who people saw could act. Now, it's not that they didn't think he could act in Employee of the Month, but that's not the kind of movie where you're going to be looked at as a serious actor. But Mr. Brooks, where you're playing a wannabe serial killer mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. in training with Kevin Costner, yeah. and you're working with John Hurd and Demi Moore, that's a big thing yeah to me that was the film where he was given the best accolades as an actor 
in his entire career. And I remember something that happened. I'm sorry I'm rambling, but no. that's an important thing for anybody. Just create your own stuff. It might not hit now, but you never know what's going to happen later and get you the job. And also, stay true to who you are when you're doing things. Don't always think that because things don't happen, like we talked about with Greg, that they're not going to be happening. If you know you've done great work and things aren't happening, don't worry about it. It's great work and it will happen. If you look at it and you're like, that's good, then you got something to worry about. But I remember a scene, I remember flying to New Mexico and I remember driving to the set and I get to the set and I see Dane and he's with Kevin Costner in the video village. And shake his hand and they're walking over to do a scene in the car. It's a scene where Dane loses his temper in the car because things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. And Kevin Costner is trying to calm him down. So he goes from calm to losing his temper to flailing in the car. And they do the take and I hear the director talking to one of the producers and he says, you got to talk to him about this, the sound, whatever. Could you go talk to him? And they go in the car next to the car. I can't see what's happening. The guy leans in to talk to Dane and the guy pokes his head out of the car and I hear you see Kevin Costner pointing at the guy. And he says, come here. And he starts yelling at the guy. And all you see in the frame is just Kevin Costner pointing at the guy and yelling at the guy. And he comes back and it's silence. Nobody's talking about anything. And the scene ends, cut, and Dane comes back and he hugs me and he walks away with me. And I say, what was that all about? What happened there? And he said, well, I was doing the scene and when I got upset, it created some noise on the microphone. And I was trying to act like in the moment of being upset. And the sound guy leaned in and said, listen, Dane, when you do this and you lose control, could you sort of keep it a little bit tight and just don't, don't really touch the microphone and do whatever? I said, so why did Kevin Costner get upset? He said, this is what he said to the guy. He said, listen, that's your fucking problem. That's not his problem. He's doing great fucking work in here. You fix it. You figure out how to do it. That's your fucking job. He's acting in this car. And... I'll never forget that. Yeah. That struck me as to the point because everybody has their jobs to do. Sure. And if you're doing great work, it's up to people to adjust around your great work. Right, right. Well, I remember doing, you know, I had done that short film, uh, uh, Queen for a Day, about the guy who pretended to be gay to pick up chicks in the gym. I love and, that. Um, so I had done that, and Dane had done Spiral, and we decided to have a screening together. So I screened mine and then he screened his. And so we had like this like Hollywood party and we had our like, you know, I'd spent, uh, I think I spent about 15 grand on mine. They had spent 50 grand on theirs. And what ended up happening was I wanted to direct and he wanted to be a movie star, right? Or, or a leading man, so to speak. So I think it was maybe seven years later, I'm directing Employee of the Month and he's starring in it. Or maybe it was 10 years later. But what had happened, I had found out I had given the short film to my agents and I said, please send this out because I want to start directing. I've sold a bunch of screenplays and, you know, movies are about to be made, that kind of thing. And they're like, oh, okay. Then I heard a little inside skinny, which was uh, Bill Zotti at, uh, at Broder at the time had said, you know, we've only sent your, 
your uh, short film out once. And I said, really? He said, well, you know, it's been tough and this and that. And he's kind of telling me this story, but we sent it to, uh, to Lionsgate to look at. Now they want to look at you for Employee of the Month. And it went out one time, one time, and that's the job I got. You do have to ask yourself as an artist, when your agent or manager tells you, you know what, um, that thing you put all your effort in and spend $15,000 for, we only sent it out to one place. It's like if you're a guy going into a nightclub, you you can ask one girl for a number and she might give it to you and she might sleep with you. But if you ask 10 girls, chances are you might have a little more success. (laughs) Trust me. Trust me. You know, I found that out years later. That was like years later. And I didn't want, I don't want to throw anyone into the bus, but uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely an interesting thing to find, piece of information. Well, it all worked out. Yeah, it worked out great. That's the thing about this town is you have to have so many irons in the fire. Like you, you set up as many projects as you can. So hopefully when one isn't going anywhere, you know, another one will. And that's sort of how I've always lived my life. That's all you can do because it's, it could take, I, I was at a DGA dinner and I don't know Shane Black personally, but I could hear them talking at the table and he's saying, it's been seven years since I did my last movie. And then I, all of a sudden I don't feel so bad. <laughs> so I'm like, that guy needs a movie. And the next thing you know, he's doing Iron Man 3. He's friends with Robert and the rest is history. And now he's like, you know, he's he's on top doing his stuff again. But you know, you see a movie like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I absolutely loved, and I was you know, thinking, why isn't he doing this one? Why isn't he doing that one? Why isn't he doing that one? But it's just sort of the nature of the beast. But like like you had said earlier, you just keep... I only feel good when I'm working. That's how I feel good. What you're saying is when you're working and getting a paycheck and you're actually working on a set, is that what you're talking about? No, actually, I mean, when I'm working... Oh, so working, you feel great all the time because you're always working. Well, Every yeah. day you're working. You it's, don't even I take feel a day much off. Better. I feel much better when I'm getting the paycheck. Trust me. That's a much better feeling. But you might get a paycheck to write a script, and every day you're writing the script. So that's what you're talking about working. I just want to make sure because no, normally I people mean, aren't happy until the cameras are rolling and they're. No, ex- I'm happy. And my writing partner is the same way. We are happy when we're just developing stuff, even if we're not getting paid for it. It makes us happy at the end of the day. So you're happy every moment of every day then? <sighs> not every moment because there are ideas that we get to that we're sitting there thinking, this is this fucking crazy this is the hardest thing we've ever tried to do and then three weeks later we're over that hump and then we look back and go it's the best scene we've ever written so we do have that moment where we're pulling our hair out or pulling each other's hair out so it is rough it's not easy like I always say it's even hard to write a piece of shit it's hard writing is not easy it's this giant mathematical problem and it's never never easy is it possible in your mind Mm -hmm. because I know when you finish a script you don't turn it in until you've checked it 1,700 times and it's just the best possible. Are there times where a movie's getting made? Let's just take Ride Along. Yes. Okay? Okay. Or any movie you've made where a star and another star are on a set. Mm -hmm. You got the shooting draft. Mm -hmm. But whenever you hire a comedian for a show Mm -hmm. or a movie, Mm -hmm. as a writer or a director... Your draft will never be what the movie is entirely because every right. comedian has a take. I remember Judd Apatow telling me in his episode about Will Ferrell, 
how we run to the set because Adam McKay would be like, okay, I'm going to punch you and now you're going to turn into a Spanish boy. Right. I'm going to punch you, you're going to be macho, and then you're going to start crying five seconds later. And then yes. there's 10 different... New choice, things. new choice, And new so choice. your draft will never be what it was. Right, right. But you got it sold as that. Yes. But so how do you feel on the set when you're there on the set and no matter who it is, let's mm -hmm. just take Kevin mm -hmm. Hart mm -hmm. and you've got something. And when you turned in this draft, if you had to pick one scene, that's like, this is the greatest, funniest scene I've ever written. My, this dialogue here, I'm going to put this <laughs> thing on a time capsule. This is the greatest thing I've ever written. And then Kevin Hart gets on the set and he does it a couple of times. Then he starts improving, And then by the end of the scene, even you and your partner are sitting in your trailer going, mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, this guy just improv. And it's 10 times better than what we spent a year writing. Yes. How does yes. that make you feel inside? Honestly, this is how you look at it. You're like, well, we laid the groundwork to give them the opportunity to be brilliant. <laughs> That's the only way you can do it. Or you say, oh, we got the right person. You have the right person. You know, we hired the right particular person for this job. Because I had a directing teacher, Ted Hurstand. One of the things he said. That's fascinating what you just said. Now, I want to share something yes. with you in the audience. Yes. You're not going to believe this. What? I have never in my career met a directing teacher. I'm talking about like uh -huh. a... Co like if you, uh, people yeah. say, I'm going to this acting coach, yeah. I'm going to this acting coach, I'm yeah. going to this guru, they're going to scene study here, yeah. I'm going to the commercial. Uh -huh. I've never met a guy whose profession is, hey, I'm a director coach. This was in theater, though. So oh. this was a theater directing class. Got it. And he said to me, 80% of your show, whether you're you know doing a film or doing a theater, doing whatever it is, 80% of you as a director is who you hire. It's 80% of that. So if you hire the right person, you're in great shape and you can kind of sit back and let them do their thing. And I find that to be very, very true. Um, when you get in the room with the right people, whether it's a Kevin Hart or a Dane Cook or a Dax Shepard or whoever it is, when they, I mean, like Tim Bagley, for example, one of my favorites. Was an employee in the month. Yeah. He's a genius improviser, but his comedy comes from the poker face, just the face that's serious. Anger within. Anger yes, within. Yes, this vulnerable anger within. There's something about when you get the right chemistry and what they can bring and changing that line that as a writer, even though you've slaved and slaved and slaved over those moments, when they bring what they bring, they bring the life to the words, to me it's very flattering. Even if they change the word, you go, oh, we didn't see that. Now, I used to be an actor, Kirk Ward, my writing partner was an actor, so we act all the scenes out. But then, you know, if Thomas Lennon were to come in and play the scene, he's funnier than I am. I, he, he just is. So to me, it's, it's, it's adding the icing to the cake. So I find it very, very rewarding. Now, if you're doing a heist movie and you say, you gotta say the word wallet here, or the movie falls apart, that's different, you know. But ultimately, I like the collaboration process and bringing it to the next level. And that's what those pieces of talent do. Now that you have some heat, yeah. are you having your agents write into the deal? Hey, listen, Greg is going to play transvestite hooker number four in this movie. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. I, 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 we get to act in the room with each other. And to me, that's, that's all it is. To me, it's about storytelling ultimately. And I don't have that desire anymore so you I mean, have no do. desire to be on camera ever again as long as you live man do i 
Well, I, that just answered the question I, I right don't. there. I really, I remember pitching Jeffrey Katzenberg. It was the most nervous I'd ever been. And I had tested for TV shows and done all that kind of stuff as an actor. But pitching him something I had written, I was like, this is really trippy for me. Did you pitch to him when he was at Disney or DreamWorks? DreamWorks. Got it. So you go into this room and it's just you and him. Actually, a guy who weighs less than you. Yeah, yeah he's the <laughs> one guy that I could wrestle and maybe win. He's a super nice guy, very attentive, great listener. He's not. He's a good pitch person because you get these pit people that you you're pitching, you're doing your song and dance, your one man show, and they're just kind of staring at you like I hate you. One of my favorite famous stories about Jeffrey Katzenberg's character, for those of you who don't know out there, when he used to run the animation at Disney, what he used to do is he used to get to the office after his breakfast meeting, and he'd walk down the parking lot of his executive's cars and he'd put his hand on the hood of every car to see if it was warm. And if the hood was warm, that meant they weren't working as hard as the other guys. And if the hood was cold, that meant they nice. got there early and they worked. Nice. So anyway, pitching him was the most intimidating and rewarding thing. And when I left that room and he bought the pitch, it was called The Wanderer. He bought that pitch. I thought to myself, I don't, I don't need to do this anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm done. Like, this is great. This to me is much more exciting and, and being able to share that experience. And, and sometimes it's fun when an actor says to you, well, how would you do it? How, you know, how would you? And you kind of say, oh, this is how I would see it being done. And then they do their own version of it. But So hopefully that answered your it question. It did. If you don't mind, I'd like to go way, way back. Sure, let's go way back. To the cornfields of Oklahoma. <laughs> okay. And let me know what your family was like, what growing up was like for you back then, the socioeconomic sure. dynamic. Sure. And if you don't mind no, telling me what the first inspiration for you, which told you I want to be in show business. Okay, yes. Born in Red Bank, New Jersey, moved to Oklahoma in a while when I was three, I think, three or four years old. My grandfather had moved out to Tinker Air Force Base, so my parents had visited Oklahoma and thought, well, this is, we, we want to get out of Jersey and get out of Manhattan. We want to raise our kids in a middle-class neighborhood in a place like Oklahoma. So, but in Oklahoma, there's not a lot to do except maybe play sports. You know, there's theater and you go see movies. And my dad was like, growing up, my dad was my basketball coach and, and he traveled quite a bit as a traveling salesman. So it was really interesting. My mother was a nurse practitioner. And so she worked Monday and Tuesday and was off on Wednesday and then worked on Thursdays and Fridays. And my dad would travel. He would leave on Monday and come back on Wednesday or Thursday. So I got a ton of family time Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then during the week, my parents were working a lot. And so I had to be creative and hang out with my friends and, you know, went to, you know, daycare, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and my family was very, very supportive of everything I did, overly so. My parents are still together. Like when you talk to somebody and you say, oh, my parents still hold hands and they're still in love. And they go, wait, what? And my father saw me in a play because I was, you know, I, I like sports and girls. That's what I liked and making girls laugh and trying to figure that out. And so my dad saw me in a play when I was in, I think it was high school, saw me in a play in high school. And after that, he said to me, whatever you want to do as an actor or in the theater or movies and TV, I'll support that 100%. And so I had really the support of my parents fully. As I went into theater school and as I moved to L.A., they, you know, I'd get every odd job I could, but they would help me with rent. They would help me with 
Because my parents just, they thought <laughs> I had won like this Allstate acting award in high school. And my dad's like, you're a good actor. Like, this is, this is pretty incredible. And I knew I wasn't going to make it in basketball or baseball or any of those sports. I was 5'8 at the time when I graduated high school. I grew a few inches since then. Um, but growing up in an, in an environment that was incredibly supportive is, I think, one of the reasons why I've been able to to sort of crack it. When I moved to LA, I didn't know a soul, didn't know a single person. So moving out to LA and not knowing anyone and then sort of just creating your own path has been, uh, has been very trippy, you know, and I know people now that have been out here for so long and this has really become my home. But, but you wanted to become an actor. So when did you move to Los Angeles to become an actor? Let's see. I, uh, I graduated college Oh man, I can't even. Okay, so this is an early '90s graduated college. Got into Cal State Long Beach master's program, and I thought Long Beach was L.A. That's what I thought. I didn't know. I had no idea it was two hours in traffic. You know, two hours in traffic, yeah. and then when I got there, I'm staring at cruise ships. Yeah. So I was there for a semester, and my parents said, "You know, you should be closer to L.A." So I got into the UCLA master's program. Uh, and wanted to continue to do theater and maybe audition and sort of do that. And I met a woman named Susan Scudder, who was a uh, casting director. And through that connection, actually, let me back up. Let me jump back real quick. I was doing a play in college, and uh, someone had seen me in the play, and they said, hey, you should come audition for um, this Disney movie starring Morris Chestnut. It's going to be in Arkansas. Can you drive five hours to audition? So my dad puts me in the car, and this is me in college, and I'm 18 or so, and I drive five hours to Little Rock, Arkansas, and I audition against 100 people that are there, and I end up getting the job. They call me five days later, and it was like three scenes with Morris Chestnut. So when you went out there, you'd never done an audition mm, before in your life. I, yeah, just for theater stuff. Yeah. yeah. Never done an audition before in your life. Yeah. There's 100 people yeah. vying for this role. Yes. You get it. Knowing what you know now, looking back, because then when you were driving away, you didn't know what you did. Even when you got the call, you didn't know didn't what you know. did. But looking back yeah. now, knowing that you've been in rooms with people yes. auditioning for you with hundreds yes. of people and yes. you've chosen that yes. one person. Yes. What do they do in the room to get the job with you? And what did you do in that room to get the job there? Well, here's the, here's the crazy part. I was right for the role. And that's the one thing that people, I think, a lot of times forget that, not that you can change, you can come in and be something else, but I was actually, I looked the part, you know, of the kid that they were looking for. They were looking for a little young Aryan blonde haired, you know, blue eyed kind of rich little snobby kid. And I had the same kind of haircut. I had the look I had the, and then I was able to come in and say the lines naturally. So looking back, I was right for the role, and I was completely opposite from Morris Chestnut. He was six inches taller than me, this handsome African-American guy, and I'm this little scrawny white kid, and I think that's what they were looking for. So now, looking back at that, when people come in to audition, when you don't get the job, it's nothing personal. And when you do get the job, it's nothing personal. <laughs> you got it because you were kind of right for the role. So that's, that's the crazy part about it. I don't believe you. Because uh -huh. and I can't believe I'm saying to you I don't believe you because I do not believe 
that everyone who gets a role in one of your films or anything that you're doing or any film mm -hmm. is right for the role. Oh, no, no, no. There I'm, I'm talking about me at that time. Okay. Yeah. When so, I went in, I was 19 years old and I looked like I was 16. So okay. there were no other of the hundred people from Oklahoma right. or Arkansas right. no, that were blonde and looked the part. I, you know, it's probably being completely naive at the time. All right. Yeah. When you were doing Employee of the Month, uh -huh. you were casting a lot of roles that you got the cast yourself entirely mm -hmm. and nobody looked over your shoulder and, and did mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people came in those rooms. Right, right. And you had a vision for a certain type that was that person. Mm -hmm. And can you look me in the eye and tell me that every person you cast was the exact type that you wanted? No, that's what I mean. Like you can bring your own, you can bring your own thing. If you bring who you are and bring your own flavor, whatever you do best, that's I think what stands out. When you did Employee of the yes. Month, yeah, and I'll go back to your story. Which actor or actress completely like you thought they were going to do a good job, but every time you saw the film, you're like. Jesus Christ, man, that person just took it to another level. Tim Bagley. When he first came into audition, he he was kind of going in one particular direction. And I said something to him, and he and I said, Okay, your character doesn't like to say women's names. Cause he just he, he was like, Wait, wait, what? Say that again. I said, just imagine he doesn't like to talk about girls. He has an aversion to females, he doesn't like to say their names. And so when he got to that part of the speech, when he's supposed to say the, the girl Amy is walking in the door, and he goes, Amy, <laughs> and he just can't say it. He, whatever for whatever reason, he latched on to that particular thing. And then from then, he really rode the role out into something I couldn't have even imagined writing. He just became another, another character. He was just so fantastic. So, so he brought something fresh and new to, to that. And, and I, it's hard to explain. <laughs> Tell me somebody you didn't hire for employee of the month that was on the bubble. You're like just deciding between them and somebody else and you didn't hire them. And they went on to do some really great things. Oh, let me see. Um... Craig Kilborn, he's had a great career. He was almost Dax's role. He was very, very close to being Dax's role. And he's, I mean, you know, Craig. Um, I'm trying to think. You know, I, was it Jeremy Renner? Someone came in and read. Was it Renner? Yeah. He came in and read, and he, I mean, he's <laughs> unbelievable, right? It just has had an, an unbelievable career. And was it, did he read for the Dax role? He read for the Dane role. The Dane role. Ah, okay. Okay. Now, I remember at the time it being Dane. Like, that was the thing. And so when you read other people knowing... But, I mean, he had said that he <laughs> could have done either role. Oh, yeah. It was yeah, just a question yeah, yeah, of what yeah. was decided. Yeah. I remember the first time he met Dane, he said, I just had to tell you something. You took that employee of the month away from me. Wow. Wow. I, you know, I don't... You will never work with Jeremy no, Renner again. No, I know, I know. I saw him recently, too. I used, to play, I used to play flag football with him. I used to see him at the gym, and yeah, he, he's doing very well. You think? <laughs> yeah. All right, keep going with your okay. story. So you get the gig in Oklahoma. Yeah, you're I working get the gig. with Morris Chestnut. How was yeah, that? That was great. 
Yeah, I, I did, you know, I worked for two days. I did three scenes. They all got edited out of the movie, which I didn't even know that could happen. I had no idea that you Why could Why do you be, think you got edited out of the movie? I have no idea. I mean, they called and said, because it, it was really about his job, his after-school job. And when you watch the movie, they kind of refer to it, but you didn't really need it. So I think that's why it got chopped, unless I was really bad. But I did get to see myself on the monitor for the first time in Video Village and watch myself. And I was like, oh, okay. I, I didn't hate myself. So I thought, okay, I did all right. That's good. So I had done that, ended up in Long Beach, met a casting director named Susan Scudder, who started introducing me. She saw me do a scene in Long Beach and started introducing me to people. And I had done a... um a play in Lubbock, Texas, and a woman saw me, this is back in college, a woman saw me and said, you need to move to LA to become an actor. And so I got a call from Fox Casting. It was Bob Harbin. Bob Harbin and Bob Huber. Huber, yeah. Bob, the two Bobs had called me and said- They were some of the best. Oh, they were great. So they called me and said, you need to come to LA. So my dad and I flew out to LA and I met them. They said, we can't do anything until you move out here to LA. So- it's great meeting them. And about a year later, um, after Susan Scudder had introduced me to a bunch of different agents, I ended up testing for a show called The Best Years. So here I am. I had just met you. I'm testing for a show against a Canadian kid named Ryan Reynolds. Never heard of him. Yeah. Um, he's also doing okay. Uh, he did not audition for Employee of the Month, um, I don't think. So... Ryan ends up getting the show The Best Years, and then um, I started doing sort of the acting, you know, making the rounds, testing for, I'm probably tested for 15 or 20 different shows. How'd you get an agent as a young kid from Oklahoma? Through Susan Scudder. She introduced me to the artist group. Got it. So, so the artist group was your first agency. Yeah, they were my first agency. Yeah. Between Susan Scudder and her roommate, a guy named Jason Kahn, he invited me. Jason Kahn. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yes. Nice. He invited me to do a scene for the artist group as his scene partner. And after we were after the scene was over, they said to Jason, "We're really interested in your scene partner." And Jason was so fucking cool. He came to me and he said, "If they want to sign you, they don't want to sign me." And I was like, "Whoa." And he said, "I'm cool with it. You know, go with I'm God." I'm cool with that. I'm yeah. going to go hang out with Jeremy Renner. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, that's how I ended up with my first Agent. Got it. So you tested for a bunch yeah. of pilots, but you didn't book any. No, I, as my dad said, I was the most, I was the highest paid non-working actor in town. Because back then they were paying a hundred thousand for a pilot, mm -hmm. and then you'd get fifty grand an episode. Why do you think, if you look back, why was what was it? your part in not in failing <laughs> and not getting any pilot after testing for all of those? Ryan Reynolds, Jason Bateman. Um, I kept running into, I would test with guys that I'd seen on series, and I was the fresh new face. And I remember coming back from these meetings, these auditions, and not getting the job or whatever, and, and thinking, I should, have, I should be that guy. I don't understand what's going on. Would you mind telling our audience the process? I always say this to <laughs> anybody who's foolish enough to listen to me, <laughs> that as an actor in pilot season, right. You only have to fool people four times four for times. five minutes yeah, each. That's true. Imagine, if you will, meeting a woman or a woman meeting a guy, and you have to decide after four or five minute meetings whether you're going to spend the next seven years with them. Yeah. That's what this process is. And I was hoping if you would mind and oblige our audience sure. and tell us 
the process from when your agent calls you or sends you something to after the test. Okay, yeah. Basically, you get a call. Hey, you're going to read for this particular role. You get sent sides, and you read these. Sometimes it's three pages. Sometimes it's 15 pages. You never really know. <clears throat> you start working on those sides. You work with a scene partner. You work with your friends, whatever, or you work in your car by yourself, whatever. You go to the audition. You usually read with the casting director first, and they sit there, and they sort of read with you. You do your scene, and then you turn around and leave. Then they call you back, and you meet the producers. And then if that goes well, they call you back, and you meet the producers and maybe another writer or the showrunner. And then if that goes well, then you go in and meet the head of Warner Brothers Television and the head of Warner Brothers Casting. And then you go in and you do it again. Meanwhile, you're sit every time you're sitting in the hallway with the same group of people that you're competing against. So you start to get to know people. So then you do that. And then if you get on to go to the test screening, you then, you know, the test deal is done where they call your agent, they call you, they say, you're going to be paid $50,000 an episode, you'll get $100,000 for the pilot, you sign here on the dotted line, it's a seven-year contract, you can't get out of it, you can't renegotiate, all that sort of fun stuff. And you do that right before you audition, which makes you feel like, I better get this. So then you go in and you do it for the network, which is all the people at the head of Warner Brothers Television, all the producers. So there's about 15 or, you know, 15 or so people, all the assistants, all the interns. Sometimes it's 20 people in the room watching you. Meanwhile, your fellow actors who've all heard you do your scene and you've heard them do their scene because you all know each other. You go into a room and you do the scene, sometimes with the lead of the show sometimes with another actor, but most of the time it's with a casting director. Why don't you tell our audience <laughs> what it's like to read with a casting director in a testing situation, and why don't you talk about how they are as <laughs> actors and actresses giving you everything from the character right. that they're reading with you. Yeah, it's like reading with, uh, what's it like? It's like reading with my mom, where you just want to stop and go, don't do it that way, mom. You want to give me something here? Yeah, because casting directors... Uh, from their point of view, they want to give everyone the same reading, so they don't really do anything. They kind of give you a little bit of emotion, but for the most part, it's like reading with, you know, a Brooklyn, a Brooklyn librarian. You know, and not all casting directors are women. Some of them, you know, are, are men, and they'll just kind of sit there and read very monotone, and you have to do, you have to act your socks off, so to speak, with somebody who's not an actor, who has no business you know, who does not want to even give you too much for fear of changing a read. One of the so, things I never understood was, and this doesn't seem like it would be a difficult thing to do, get an actress yes. to read it and videotape it, okay? Videotape all her things, mm -hmm. and you have it on a big screen, and you just press pause, play, pause, play, pause, play, and everybody has the same yes. advantage or disadvantage, but you actually have somebody reading the lines with emotion. Yeah, well, you know, they do that. When I was doing the troupe, I, I noticed that when we went to cast a lot of the episodes there, that's how they do it in Canada. They bring in a professional actor to read with everybody. They have double camera kind of setup system, and you watch it all like you would in Video Village, and it's so much better, and it's just a much, much better system. But that being said... Um, there is a method to the madness because you got to get people in and you got to get people out. But, right? <laughs> but there's got to be a reason why. How many pilots did you test for? Oh, man. Probably 15. 15 pilots. Yeah. And I, I, there are actors I know who are very successful working actors 
who would say to me, I've never even tested 15 times. Yeah. yeah if you test for 15 pilots, that's in how many years? And I think it was, it was probably four years. In four years. To be honest with you, there's very few people who do that. Yeah. But to be even more honest with you, which is going to make Greg run out of here and close the door <laughs> in my face, is that he basically booked as many pilots as a dead guy. <laughs> I mean, you could have yeah. sent a dead person and wheeled them in to do the test. And they would have booked as many pilots as Greg. So you have to understand what your part was in that. Right. Well, it's interesting because I would come out of the audition and I didn't get the job and say Ryan Reynolds got it or Jason Bateman or whoever. And my agents would say, how did it go? You know, casting director said you were fantastic. You hit it out of the park. And I would say, you know, it's weird that you guys aren't sending me out for anything other than leading roles. Like all these guys that I'm competing against, they've all been doing this for a long time. And I don't know anybody. I didn't know any of the producers. I didn't know any of the writers. I had, they weren't sending me on guest starring roles. They weren't, they were sending me just for home run shots. And I always felt like if I was a TV writer and I'm going to hire this guy that's never done anything to carry a show, I need to know that he at least had an arc on something else. And so for me, I would always bother them and they would say to me, you know what? It's just as hard to get a guest starring role as it is to get a lead in a pilot. And I was, I was always frustrated by that. So to me, I always wanted to blame that. It might have been that I just wasn't funny enough yet. You don't think you had anything to do with not getting them. You think every time it was somebody who just was a bigger name. If that were the case, how did no. Beth Bear's book two no, broke girls? No, I know because there there are people that that do it all the time. I mean, look at Ashton. Look at I know like, that's what yeah. I'm saying. The reason why I'm asking yeah. this not to make you feel like insignificant or no, horrible. No, no, no. I'm asking you because you've been on both sides. You've been in rooms where you saw people come in and give everything they had, who actually have tested for things over and yeah. over again. Forget that there were bigger names. doesn't matter if there's a bigger name. If you're 10 times better, you're going to get it. So what did you not do in those rooms? The answer is self-confidence. The answer is even when you're playing a Chandler Bing type of role or that type of you know, high energy, whatever that is, it's being able to have the confidence in the room that whether you have your pages in your hand, I personally like actors to have their pages in their hand even if they don't need them, because it makes you feel as a, as a writer or a director watching them that, that they're not quite finished. So I feel like when I was doing it, I didn't quite have the ultimate confidence um, in that moment in the audition. I did getting there. I did leaving. I do as a writer and as a director sitting there talking story with anybody like I, that confidence is, has always been there. But as an actor, I think going when sitting there in the sitting next to the Batemans and all those people, it always sort of got under my own personal skin. It became my own issue. Jason would come out of the room and ah, huge, huge laughs. And they'd go, hi, what's your name again? And I always felt, and I think they could feel me feel that. So that to me is what I always felt was missing when I was auditioning for that stuff. Got it. That's really important stuff. When you're an actor, like, yeah, you got to have that. So after you fail 15 times at something. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. What do you do next? You start fucking writing. Because <laughs> I'm reading this material and I'm reading it going, 
I could write this scene. This is, I, wait, I don't even want to do this show. This is terrible. This is a terrible sitcom. This is never going to get on the air. And if it does, I'll be stuck doing this for seven years. That was my motivation. Tell me a show you tested for that you thought was terrible oh. that was on for seven years. Oh, you know what? Have I been on? Oh, was not terrible. Was uh, two guys, a girl, and a pizza place. That's right. Um, I actually liked that show. I thought it was. I thought it was good. Um, I came in to read, and I would thought I was reading against Ryan again, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, and I'm like, "Hey, are you uh, you coming in to read?" He goes, "Oh no, I'm the other guy," and I was like, "Oh, you're the other." You're the other guy. Okay. And this was a year after he beat me out on another show. That was a show that Dane Cook went in and had a great audition for, didn't get it. And then they hired Ryan Reynolds and it seemed like to him that he was playing the same character that Dane played. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Sort of that, that Jim Carrey-ish yeah. kind of goofy guy. Yeah. So, um, so during that experience, I started writing on my downtime. I was like, I need to get back into this. I need to get into this in a different sort of direction. Now, how do you... How do you start how writing? How do you start writing when your agent is representing you for theatrical and going out and acting, and now you're writing and you don't have anybody at the agency? Well, what happened was uh, my buddy Max Burnett um, had an idea for, uh, for a movie. It was called Possums, which you had mentioned earlier. Um, it was about a high school football coach, or a high school football radio announcer Team gets canceled and he starts calling fake games because he really misses having the team and it kind of creates this camaraderie. So I'm jogging with a friend of mine and she says, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about producing this independent film with a guy named Michael Burns who now runs Lionsgate 10 years later. Relationships. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, she says, I'm thinking about producing a movie. Do you have any good ideas? And I said, oh, my friend Max. And she said, well, do you have a script? And so I lied to her and said, yeah, we have a script which we didn't. And I'd never produced anything. I knew nothing. And so Max and I would go and meet at the Beverly Center every day for like three hours in the food court. And we would work on this script. And I was not a writer at the time. He was the writer. And I would sort of help him as a producer. And so he, we worked on, worked on a draft. And six weeks later or 12 weeks later, we gave her the script. And she read it and said, I love this. So she optioned it. And I remember a year later it came up, Michael Burns turns to me and says, yeah, should I make this movie? And I said, yeah. He's like, well, how much money do you think? And can we make it for a million bucks or whatever? I said, yeah, absolutely. He's like, you're going to star in it? And I said, yes. Meanwhile, my manager at the time, Bud Robinson, he's deceased now. Um, he kept telling me, don't write, don't write, don't write. Don't be doing any writing. And that's what I was doing during my downtime. You know, Why did he say that? I don't know. He said, you can only focus on one thing, focus on being an actor. You're so close. You're so close. And so what I did was I didn't listen. He got upset with me, found financing for a movie, and he and I ended up going separate ways because he was upset. And I ended up yeah, getting financing for that movie. Went to Sun, it went to Sundance. We made the movie for a million bucks back in Oklahoma. And that was sort of the launching of my writing career. Even though Max wrote and directed it, I was the lead in it. I was a producer on it. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to start this path. So again, I was still kind of acting at the time, but then I started going that direction. And I had written another script that a friend of mine was at a dinner table with Emil Gladstone and said, hey, they wrote this script called Queen for Day. Emil Gladstone. Uh-huh. So Emil Gladstone, yeah, agent um, at Broder at the time, yeah. And Emil said, uh, can you write me something else? And so my writing partner at the time, Joe Jarvis, who's also from Oklahoma, 
Emil said, yeah, write me something else. Write me a teen sex comedy because um, it was called East Grand Rapid High at the time. American Pie was a huge movie. And he said, can you write me a teen sex comedy? And so I came up with this idea called uh, Truth or Dare about a group of kids that are spending their last summer together on this cul-de-sac, and they decide the guys versus girls to play the ultimate game of Truth or Dare. And as they start playing the game, they start to learn things about each other that they didn't know. So it kind of unfurls, and it has some heart, and it has this, but it's ultimately a teen sex comedy. That sold to New Line, and that sort of launched my writing career with, with Joe Jarvis. And then the rest is like, Joe wanted to sit around in his underwear and write spec scripts, and I wanted to direct movies. And that's kind of how it thrusted forward. And then, and then that was it, <laughs> off and running. And I never looked back at the acting thing. I was like, this is the path. Because when, when I was acting and I was reading all this material, I was thinking, well, I, could, I can do this as a writer. Some of this isn't very good. And then as a writer, I learned, oh, it's not always your fault as a writer. A lot of other cooks in the kitchen, a lot of things that go through. Like I remember um, you know, writing something and having it be sent out going, oh my God, my name's on this, but this isn't exactly what we wanted to send out. So I learned you know, sort of trial by fire like everybody else. How many times in your career have you lied to somebody to get to a place where you wanted to get to? Uh, you lied to someone such as... Because you said you lied to that woman that you had something you didn't have. Oh, and, oh, oh, so yeah, how many was... times have you lied to get oh, yourself I'll, to the next I'll level? Probably, probably 10 times. 10 if times. If it's a positive lie, if it's something that can be accomplished. Because sometimes they'll say, how, you know, when can you give us that draft? Can you give us to, on Friday? And you're like, yeah, I can do that. And then you know you're going to be burning the midnight oil whether or not you can make it or not. Just it's, like renovating the house. Yeah, it's the same way. But most of the time, yeah, we, are, you know, we, we always deliver. What's always. the worst lie you ever told in show business? Boy, I don't know. I don't know if I have even enough leverage to make a bad lie. <laughs> like, no one cares if I... What's the worst lie? Well, uh, okay. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. <laughs> That's the worst lie I've ever said. They're like, hey, you're, that turned out really great, don't you think? Uh-huh. I'm really proud of that. I was not expecting that answer. That was awesome. That was awesome. I'm, awesome. Sure, I'm sure we've all done it on a monthly basis. That's fantastic. Because, you know, it's, it, it's the nature. It's a collaborative effort. If I was financing these things on my own, then I can make all the decisions. But I'm not. So yeah. that's, that's the trick. Do you know when you're doing something? How's your gut? How does your instincts? Good. Like, do you know when you're doing something, if it's going to be a hit? And do you know when it's not going to be a hit? I, I think so. I mean, that's what we all have to go from. Like when you're... Writing ride along, for uh -huh. instance. Uh -huh. Oh yeah, and I... you finished the draft. Now you finished the draft. That was obviously an assignment that was given to you. But no, that was original. So in other words, yeah. you wrote a spec script. Yeah, you weren't yeah. getting paid for it. No, it was a pitch. Not you didn't write the script. No, it was a pitch. So you pitch. And could you talk to our audience what a pitch meeting is like for a movie versus a television show? Sure, sure. Um, let's see. One of my ex girlfriends at the time had said to me, oh, by the way, you're playing golf with my brother today, that kind of thing. She kind of threw that on my lap, and I had to spend four and a half or five hours with her brother, who she had told me was a huge asshole. 
She's like, oh, by the way, you're, you're the foursome. And I was like, what? So I remember having that experience, spending the day with this guy who turned out to be just fine, but spending the day going, there's something in that world that I like about somebody being thrust in. And so I started talking to Walter Hamada, my producing partner at the time. And we were kind of thinking around the world. We're like, how about, you know, I said to him, what about if it's a cop and he, and he's got a dirty cop. And I said, what is it? You know, is it a funny training day kind of thing? And I remember Walter saying, you know, ride along and, and us kind of coming up with this idea based on and our first inclination of it or our first interpretation of the idea was, was very, very similar to due date was guy has to get to his wife's birth. and He's got to travel across the country with his future brother-in-law who's nuts. That was the first version of it. And then it became Ride Along. And we thought, oh, with this particular title, Ride Along, no one's really done this. That can be a good idea. So I put the pitch together uh, with Walter. And my writing partner, Joe, and I were sort of separating at the time. He wanted to write specs and I wanted to be a director. And so he and I were kind of going our separate ways. And I remember at the time, Emil Gladstone saying to me, you can't do this. You can't, you can't separate from Joe. You guys are selling screenplays all the time. Everybody knows you as Jarvis and Coolidge or Coolidge and Jarvis. You can't do this. And I said, well, he and I have talked about it. We're cool with it. We're going to go our separate ways. And it's a very, very nerve wracking time. So uh, Walter and I go in and we pitch Emil Gladstone and Bill Zotti, who kind of give us the stare. And then they say, uh, all right. You know, they weren't really behind it. They're like, we still think you should just spec it out with Joe. And I said, I'm going on my own. So Walter set all the meetings and I'm thinking, oh man, I just separated from my writing partner. I'm doing this on my own. My agent's not behind me. You know, this is really nerve wracking, very scary. We go to New Line, we go to Revolution and you know, we pitch it all over town. And now when you say we, I, Walter goes into the room with me and I stand there and I do my one man show. Like I act things out and I talk about character and I kind of run through a 20 minute version of the movie as if movie pitching the good way. Of course, if you read Save the Cat, that's a good way to to kind of understand what what a pitch would be like. But it's a 20 minute version of the movie. The whole thing about these pitches is they always say a kiss. Keep it simple. Yeah. You've just got to have something that literally the first line almost they will buy it. But then you got a few minutes after that to get them, and then you go through it. And here's the crazy part. It, at one point, it was Steve Carell and The Rock. And at one point, it was Ryan Reynolds and The Rock were attached, which is odd because I'm like, oh, yeah, he used to beat me out all the time. And yeah, I know that guy. So it had gone through different. So when you pitch to the different yeah. studios, oh, yeah. how many passed um, and how see. many wanted I it? I probably did. Uh, let's see. The first place I went was New Line. And when I left New Line, they said, we want this. And so then I started pitching it all over town in the next couple of days. Uh, I pitched to Revolution, pitched to Universal. And just so our audience knows, one of the greatest things in the world in this business, when you get on your first pitch and they say they want it, it's like, you have your get out of jail free card. Oh, no, it's like it was, then you have all the confidence in the world. You're going into the pitches. You're taking chances that you oh, wouldn't it's, take. A, it's the you're greatest thing little, ever. A little cockier. You're but telling then, your agent, "Hey, you can stay home for this one. We got the." Well, they said we want it, and then they said, "But you need to come back and pitch it again because Toby, the head of the studio, is not sure if Toby he wa- Emmerich, not sure if he wants it." So I'm like, oh. And okay. the reason this happens, everybody, is in television. A lot of shows that you can sell in reality, non-scripted. 
and a lot of different things. You make these sizzle reels and you give them and you play them to any executive and then they give them to the next executive and the next executive. You don't pitch to the head person and they can't fuck up your pitch. But back when Greg pitched, what happened was he did the pitch and the guy he pitched to has to go to Toby and sit in his office and play telephone. Yes. And by the time they pitch to the third person, it's about two hookers shooting dice in a swimming pool. Yeah. You know, it's Which like, wait a second, a bad... that's not what I pitched. <laughs> yeah, so they went to Toby, so this is what we want. And Toby's like, I don't know if that makes sense. So then I had to go back and pitch Toby. So now the pressure's on because other people had passed. So everyone else had passed. We had heard that New Line was interested, but now I had to go back and pitch Toby. So I go back to pitch Toby, and he's a character. And he's got his dog, Bear, I think is his dog's name. And Toby says, well, you know, if you can pitch me and keep me engaged. In his lap like a Bond villain. Yeah, exactly. And he says, I might have to take a call, and I'm going to leave the room, but if Bear stays in the room, I'll buy it from you. Yeah. And then if not, if Bear gets up and leaves and he's not interested, I'm not going to buy it. And, of course, I think he's fucking around. Anyway, That's why whenever yes. you go on a pitch, bring cold cuts with you in your pocket. You'll always you have a should. good... So I'm in there with Walter and Larry Bresner and the executives. The late... Late Larry Bresner. Larry Bresner, great, great manager. That was yes. your manager at the time? Uh-huh. And uh, Magnus Kim and Cale Boyder and, um, and then Toby and then Bear. I think that's his dog's name, right? Isn't it Bear? The I hope so. Retriever? Uh, yeah, I think so. So doing the pitch, going through it, and I had incorporated some notes that the executives had mentioned that Toby was sort of like, I don't know about this. So I changed a couple things. So I'm doing the pitch. Toby gets the phone call. He gets up and leaves. And I'm looking at the guys going, so he wasn't fucking around. He's really leaving. And the dog's sitting here. So I'm you know, continuing to kind of chat and talk. The dog sits. Toby comes back in. The dog's still sitting there. Toby sits down. And he kind of stops me. And he's like, okay, we want it. We'll, we'll take it. I know the guys want to buy it. And, the, and he says, and he starts trying to negotiate with me about how much money I'm going to get. And I'm like, ah, I don't, you talk to Larry, talk to Walter. So then I left and he says, who else are you going to pitch? And I said, well, we have a couple more pitches. And then, and then Toby was like, no, I'm going to buy it. And here we're going to take it off the table. So yeah, we had a couple more pitches to go to. But that's essentially, and so now it's so funny because I hear that story about Bear being in the room. If he stays, he buys it. From other people. And I'm like, yeah, that was the ride-along pitch. And then ride-along, you know, it took, it took a while to, to get up and going. Talk right? about that process. Oh, wow. Well, I did numerous drafts for them. At one point, I was up to direct it right after Employee of the Month, before the strike had hit. Um, had gone in and met with Matt Alvarez. So this movie was in development for close to five years. No, probably more like seven or eight. Yeah. Seven years at the studio. Yeah, yeah. And I would get a call from them every six months, like, oh, it's going to be Owen Wilson and whoever. Like, it's, like it was always going to be a new... Whoever Did they the spread new... your money out over seven years, or oh, you got it all man. at once, and you're, like, no, working for free it, the rest yeah. of the time? Yeah. And then they brought on other writers. Which is the yeah. most frustrating thing in the world, because what happens is movies do this, television shows aren't allowed to do this. Mm -hmm. If you write a television pilot, they cannot bring anybody in yeah. and fire you. They could fire you, but your name is on it and uh -huh. no one else's name is on it. Yeah. But in film, they take people off all the time, bring in more writers to make more drafts mm -hmm. and more drafts and more drafts. And then sometimes your project doesn't have one name on it anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we, I got very lucky with Ride Along because by the time it had come back around and I, 
New Line had taken me to lunch and they said, we're going to let Universal make this. And we're going to let, because Cube had been on it for a couple of years, for a number of years. And he was looking for that next guy. And so they said, we're going to give it to Universal. Of course, now New Line still, nobody knows this, but they still own a piece of it. So they're, they're, they're getting theirs. And uh, they quickly did, they went back to my original draft. And then uh, Matt Manfredi and Phil Hay came on and did a quick pass on my, my draft. And then they ended up doing the, um, uh, the sequel, those guys. Got it. So yeah. they gave the sequel to them. and they To the last guys that came on that were packaged with, with UTA. Got it. Yeah. So they didn't let you do the sequel. No. Uh-uh. How do you feel about that? Well, it's, yeah, you always have mixed feelings about it. You know, there were a couple things that they, that they changed from the first draft. And I'm not sure if it was Matt, uh, Matt and those guys that did it or Matt and Phil or if it was the studio or who had changed. But there was one thing that they changed in the first movie that to me would have rolled into the second movie and made the sequel much better. In the first movie, in my, my version of the movie, um, the Benjamin Barber character, Benjamin uh, Kevin, was not trying to be a cop. He was just a school teacher. He was anti-gun. He was anti-violence. He was anti-everything. And by the end of the movie, he's shooting the bad guy through the chest. You know, he, he has that sort of coming out, so to speak, and, and that's who he becomes at the end. So then in your sequel, he's got it in his mind like, hey, I can do this, I can help. And then that helps launch the sequel into, hey, I want to be a part of this. And, you know, that's where it was originally thought of. When your original deal was done for Ride Along. No, I still get paid. Don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> you were protected for oh, yes. every single separated thing. Separated rights. Yes, I was. I have good attorneys. I yes. want you to talk about separated rights to our audience. Sure. Yeah, separated rights essentially is when you come up with an original idea and your agent or your, your, your lawyers negotiate so that you are protected no matter what happens to the IP, the intellectual property. So if this becomes a TV show, if it becomes the next police academy where they do nine of these or whatever, I get paid continually and I still get credit continually throughout. So that you always want to fight for your separated rights so that no matter what happens, you will at some point, you know, you get to be attached to it, something that you created. So if you look at something like the Broadway show Defending the Caveman, which mm-hmm. made like $44 million in the first two or three years, mm-hmm. he was protected when the producers went out and put it all over the country with yeah. different people sure. in it Yeah, because of separated rights. Yeah, it's very, very important. All right, six degrees of separation. <laughs> I'm going to mention some names. Yes. And you're going to tell me anything that comes to mind. Okay. okay. Morgan Freeman. Yes. Yeah. Dirty Old Men. I have a project with him at, uh, at Warner Brothers. We've met with him a handful of times. Really, really great guy. Very smart. Good with story. You would expect him. He really is exactly who you think he is. But he's also, he, he's, he's definitely, what's a good word? He, he's so quick and good with story that when you sit and you talk story with him, you feel like you're talking to someone who's been doing it for a long time. And it's surprising that he sounds almost more like a writer at times than he does an actor. Because a lot of times actors are more concerned. I want this speech out here. I want that moment. I want this. But he's very much into, as a producer, very much into the overall story, which I really appreciated. And he also said to me, don't ever cut your hair. Your mama will kill you. And it's so funny because my mom would always say, don't cut your hair too short. Cut your blonde locks off. Because I was like, I want to buzz my head. I was talking about it one day. He's like, your mom's going to kill you. Harlan the Williams. Uh, Harlan, 
one of my favorite guys, just as a person in the world, one of my favorite improvisers too. Harlan's the type of guy that I love that I love working with because I could go to him and say, "Hey, you know, this line here is a, needs something. Like, you're you're missing a, uh, a what's a good way to say it? Like, he would just be good with rhythm. You could say to him." You know, I haven't seen that guy in blotty, 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 blah. And you would say, da, 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 da. And he would just come up with a line that fit that rhythm, which is so impressive, I think. Awesome. Morris Chestnut. Oh, well, first job ever was Morris Chestnut. And he was a really, really great guy. He had done Boys in the Hood and then was doing this Disney movie. And I had never been on a set, didn't understand what a honey wagon was. When they said, go get your lunch, I didn't even know what that meant. And he was a really nice guy who said, oh, this is what they mean. And he spent a good 20 minutes with me. He probably doesn't even remember me, especially having being edited out. So he's doing fine, too. <laughs> Andy Dick. Oh, Andy. One of the sweetest, funniest guys in the world. Definitely a handful. Why um, was he a handful on Employee of the Month? We shot for six weeks. He was sober for five and a half weeks. <laughs> and literally, like the last three days, he fell off the wagon and became crazy Andy, you know, the other Andy that we know, because there are two Andys. There's the genius, improviser, sweetest guy in the world, Andy, and then there's crazy Andy. Now, because I was directing, I didn't have to worry about a lot of all the handlers had to deal with that. But yeah, he's, I mean, I mean Andy's, he's one of the greatest. Absolutely. Ice Cube. Ah, oh, let's see. Ice Cube, one of the best straight men in the world, one of the best businessmen in the world, and probably the nicest guy to my mom. You know, I've only met him or hung out with him a few times, and he probably couldn't pick me out, or he'd go, yeah, sure, I know you, but just a sweet, sweet soul. Dax Shepard. Ah, uh, Dax Shepard. What I like about Dax, one of the most honest people in the world. I remember him saying to me, you know, Coolidge, this sounds like my Barry Katz impersonation, but he goes, you know, Coolidge, you're like a, an A- minus or a B plus <laughs> in the looks category. You're handsome enough to get the girl, but not so handsome that it's intimidating, and you, you just kind of fall right into that category. And I say, oh, Dax, that's pretty, you know, I appreciate that. And he, the thing about Dax is great improviser. And I remember knocking on his trailer one day to talk to him about a scene. And I, he's like, yeah, come in. And I, I open the door and I go in and he sees the directors there. And he's like, oh, don't tell anybody about this. And he was writing alts down next to you, all of his dialogue. And I said, well, whether you do it in here or you do it on the set, it's the same thing. You're a writer, you're a creator, you're, you know. It doesn't matter. And he was like, oh, yeah, I guess I never really thought about that. He just wanted people to think that he was, you know, a magician. <laughs> Rapper T.I. Super, super handsome guy. Really handsome. Square jaw. Again, nice guy. Spending time with him. Because only, I've only spent time with him three or four times. The one time I spent time with him at the, this hotel in Beverly Hills, he kept getting up to leave and getting up to leave and getting up to leave. And I was thinking, is he not enjoying our story structure here? Is he not? He doesn't care what's going on. And then the next morning, he was arrested. And I thought, oh, he was doing his gun deal. 
That's what was happening there. <laughs> so he wasn't that he wasn't concerned about me. He had other business to do. No, but very, very bright guy. Um, and again, just... Except when it came to firearms. Well, you know, yeah, not to get into all that because I don't want to, you know, but he, he, had, he has his reasons, I guess. <laughs> the Rock. Very good with story. A lot bigger than you would think, especially in person. He's, 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 he's as big as you think he's going to be. You know, like he <laughs> walks in, you're like, oh, wow, he's massive. But again, you know, a lot of, a lot of what happens on my side of the, the street with the story and the creating the script and writing the script and working with actors, when they get the script and like, I'd like this moment, I want this to change, and what about that? It's always nice to work with someone like, like Dwayne who is good with story. It's such, such a huge relief because I've heard about these other stories. I haven't worked with them, but I've heard about these nightmare stories that happen, but I've been lucky enough to, to skirt that. So again, good with story. That's one of my favorites. Dane Cook. Ah, Dane. Surprisingly fantastic actor. I've always known that, but I didn't think a lot of people outside of the comedy world would know how good of an actor he is. When, of course, I knew him from Spiral and knew him through Jeff and through you. I was a little nervous because you hear other people going, well, Dave's a comedian. He's a... I was a little nervous going into employee, but seeing him like on the first day or the first couple days, unbelievably professional, extremely well rehearsed and a really solid, solid actor. And so to me, those, those were the things that I, I really was surprised by. Tyler Perry. When I met him, his hand engulfed my hand. Like I just had like a baby hand to him. He's one of the biggest presents you could imagine. And you know why he's successful. Like you couldn't see him at a, doing anything else. I mean, I couldn't see him doing anything else except maybe running for presidency or something. You know, he's 6'5", extremely well-spoken, very charismatic. He, he's like meeting, I would, you know, I met briefly, I met uh, Clint Eastwood at the DGA, but it was like meeting someone like that. You, you go, oh, I see why you are who you are. Fantastic presence. Great guy. Jessica Simpson. Extremely sweet, surprisingly well-read, you know, because she has this persona of being sort of the blonde dingbat, which is not true at all. Very, what's, what's a good word? Very um, homegrown. Like, I remember I mentioned that I liked Rice Krispie Treats. So the next day, she's like, hey, I made you some Rice Krispie Treats. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Just very, very sweet and very genuine person. That's, I think that's probably the thing I liked about her the most was how genuine she was. Oh, and finally, Kevin Hart. Wow, another guy, another super nice guy. Very genuine. I, I like people that are nice to my family. That's how, that's always the nice, like, he's like, oh, this is your sister. Oh, this is your, you know, your mom. Very, very nice guy. Very, very bright quick. Such a hard worker. Such a hard worker. I'm starting to notice now in, in when I first started in the business, I would see a lot of people, guys and girls who would have a lot of success and they were kind of clueless and they were kind of, everything's sort of done for me and I'm not really, where do I show up and what's my line? And you know, that kind of thing. 
that has to me has swung and the people that are having much more success now are all the driven people. And I don't know if it has to do with social media or keeping your star going. And it all started with Dane, frankly. I mean, he, Dane was the guy going home at three o'clock in the morning, emailing people saying, this is how you do it, building his own audience and pushing that forward. And everyone's going, you know, they used to make fun of him. And now they're like, oh, that's how I do it. And Kevin Hart is like Dane. He's the same thing. He's driven. He's cool to his fans. He gets out there. And he's just a genuine guy who worked really hard for it. I remember seeing Kevin in, um, uh, uh, what was it called? What was the movie? The airplane movie? Soul Plane. Seeing him in Soul Plane. And he was the lead in Soul Plane. I remember thinking, that guy's going to be a star. That guy's really good. He's really, really good in this movie. And then the movie didn't, didn't perform as well. And so that was his sort of first shot. And it took, a, well, it took another seven years before he got another shot. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But that's, yeah. But Kevin Hart, driven, nice. I like nice people. Awesome. <laughs> uh, before I get into the final three questions, yeah. tell me what it's like as a young director... You're directing two alpha males, mm -hmm. Dak Shepard and Dane Cook. Right. And you're directing, arguably at the time, one of the most beautiful, sexy, and just unbelievable presences mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Jessica Simpson. All three of them are there together in close quarters, and you have Dak Shepard and Dane Cook off camera fighting for her attention. Right. And both of them, I would imagine, would want to have some kind of relationship with her, even if they were married, had girlfriends forever, whatever, because <laughs> when Jessica Simpson walked in the room, it's like you forgot where you were as a human being. And she was so soft-spoken. Yeah, very sweet. But she oozed sexuality. Uh -huh. It was like the craziest thing. The closest thing to watching in person, the only thing I can think of was like watching a Marilyn Monroe clip, but you were in person with her. Well, yeah, I didn't realize what, because I'd seen her in movies and seen her on, you know, a wave, you know, you see her through screens and you go, oh yeah, okay. And then when I met her the first time, I was like, oh, I get it. I am now, I, I get it. Because she has this crazy great presence and charisma and to be you know, sweet on top of that. And you understand what it's like when you're in a room like you know, with Tyler. You, when you meet all these people and get to know them, you see why. You, 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 when you're in the presence with them, you go, oh, I see why they're successful. You, they have that X factor. And she definitely had it. I really liked the fact that Dane and, and Dax were fighting over her off screen. It worked great for the movie. It worked. I worked. I didn't have to really direct. Again, it goes back to Ted Hurstans. You cast the right people, and you can sort of sit back and watch it happen. And we would do that. And Andrew Panay, and I, the producer, we would go. Another guest on this podcast here was fantastic. <laughs> oh, I haven't heard Panay's. Yeah, he produced Wedding Crashers yeah. and Earth to Echo, an amazing producer. Yeah, he's great. And we would sit there and watch them argue. So for me, it, I didn't even have to do much. The, the tension was there, the arguing was there, and so when they were in scenes together, it was, it was already palpable, which worked out really great. Got it. Your proudest moment in show business? Um, proudest moment in show business. 
after the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say being asked to do, you know, um, I would say proudest moment in show business might have been getting the first laugh at the test screening of employee of the month, getting that first laugh, because then you can kind of go, ah, okay. That, that's probably the moment where you go, all right, like this joke worked and people are laughing at what I'm doing and what I'm creating. And it's such a, yeah, it's just such a big moment. It, I didn't understand what it would be like to, to have a movie screen. I didn't know, you know, when you're, when you're a writer, yeah, your movie screens and I'd seen other people, you know, this, someone else directed this movie and this one didn't really turn out that well. And, you know, but when you're writing and directing, you feel like you're standing up there naked on stage, bending over, having everybody sort of analyze you from every angle, because that's what you're doing. You're showing someone creatively and emotionally, here's what I have to, to sort of show people. So yeah, that was probably, yeah, I would say it was the best moment. This, the second best moment would be the, the scoring testings when the tests came back after that first test screening and we scored in the 80s. And the woman from NRG, which is now Nielsen, gave me a high five and a hug because she knew this was my first movie. And she said, you did it. And, you know, Lionsgate said, we don't need to test anymore. The cut's fine. We're moving on. I was like, whoa, that was a really cool sort of artistic moment, knowing that the audience, you know, enjoyed it. So awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how it might have fueled you to the next uh, not life. getting the next movie, not getting the next directing movie, meaning, you know, I was doing the, the strike had hit, the TV show had come out. Thank God I had a TV show while the strike was going on. A lot of my friends lost houses and everybody's sort of business changed. You know, I, I had sold my last pitch that I had sold that sold for over a million dollars. I sold a pitch and that was my business was going in and pitching, setting up projects and then writing them and kind of sitting back. And then after the strike happened, then the financial collapse happened and the business changed. They're like, we're not buying any more pitches. I was like, oh, that's what I do for a living. So I need to start specking. And so from, I would say, yeah, it was getting, you know, getting that next movie, getting that next thing teed up. That's been the, that's been the, uh, the tricky one. Last question. Yeah. What advice would you have for the young actor, writer, producer, director, everything encompassed in that person who's oh, yeah. growing up in a farmhouse in Oklahoma somewhere on a cornfield and wondering, how am I going to get to yeah. the next level and get the kind of situation happening for myself well, that Greg Coolidge has? Well, it's so great now with, with YouTube. Had I, had, had I started now, because you know, back in my day, you would write a screenplay and try to get someone to read it. Nowadays, you have this iPhone and you can shoot something, write something, shoot something, put it up. Write something, shoot something, put it up. That's what I would be doing all the time. So you can do it. You can do it on your own now. I mean, kids are doing it. There's viners that are making, you know, millions of dollars, and you watch these vines, and you're like, oh, that was clever, but these other 27 were eh, not so clever. But, hey, they're putting out 26 in a day. Of course, that's, that's what's going to happen. So that's it. You got to do it. You can write and direct and do your own thing. Push forward. Everybody has it. Everyone, I'm sure you've never heard the same story twice. Everyone has their own path. So, yeah, make your path. 
awesome Greg Coolidge. Thanks you delivered. <laughs> you delivered much more than you did as an actor on pilots and <laughs> pilot season for us today. Oh man. Oh, but I'll have to come back and give you a real pitch. I'd rather have an awful pitch and sell it than have a great pitch and not sell yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. I've had a few of those. So I'm very well, thank grateful. Thank you again. I'm really, I'm really flattered and touched to even be here. Oh, I'm so grateful you did. Thanks again, buddy. Thanks. Appreciate it. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Julie Wilson from Esterville, Iowa. Congratulations, Julie. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right. This one landed on 626, August 5th, 2013. Heading is 100%, five stars. Short but sweet, they wrote, so far, so good. All right, 6026, congratulations. And as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. <laughs> and if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders and walk you to fame. You'll get all the money and drive that fancy car. All the people love you because you're going far. Life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... 
please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.